0: Good morning, church. Um, It's been a while. Um, I think it's been right at two years. The last time I was here was actually the same day I proposed to my wife. Um, And then uh, we graduated school and we had this little thing called the coronavirus pandemic. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, So I haven't really been able to be here and to worship with you, but I'm really, really excited to do that this morning. Um, so I don't want to waste too much time. Um, when a, you go to Baptist college or Bible school or seminary, you know they usually teach you should open with something funny or intriguing or whatever it is. And I just don't have time for that. Like, I'm here to talk about the Bible. And so let's go ahead and do that this morning. Turn with me um, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Um, like Larry said, um, I'm a teacher at Alliance Christian Academy. This is, I'm going to be going into my third year Um, There I teach theology, I teach what we call an Old Testament survey class to a bunch of 14 and 15 year olds. It is as fun as it sounds, I promise. Um, And what we do in that class is we walk our way from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi, from the opening to the closing of the Old Testament. Um, And one of the books of the Bible that we don't cover nearly as much as I would like to, and it is my own fault um, is the book of Exodus. And so I kind of made it um, an effort of my own this summer to dig into the book of Exodus. And um, per typical, when I join you, um, I'm only here to share with you what I have learned myself. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. Um, we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit in our Bibles. Um, so if you need to do some finger stretches, some exercises, um you have freedom to do that, even if you need to stand and do that real quick, okay? Go ahead. Uh, but I want to anchor us here in Exodus chapter 20. Um, you might recognize it is when God introduces um, what we um, in the 21st century have ascribed as the Ten Commandments um, to his people. But what we see here is going to be a paradigm and a lens through which we're going to view the rest of the scripture that we read today. So let's go ahead and read And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, Father, as we look to learn how to worship you well this morning, would we Have our hearts and our minds open to your spirit who indwells those of us who are disciples of your son, Jesus. Would we practice well the way of walking in Jesus? and Would we be prepared to be met with conviction or or anything else that you choose to bring into our lives this morning? Father, be with us as we open up your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Other than one teaching of Jesus, the Ten Commandments, the verses we just read, and about the the seven or ten that follow, um, those are the most concise places of our Bible where we see the law, the fullness of the law of God distilled down for the Hebrew people and for us. One error that I know that I have often made, um, and I hope I haven't passed on to my students, is that I often see the Ten Commandments as a beginning. That God gave his commandments, and this is when his people begin to worship and to follow him, but if we look a little bit more toward the beginning of our Bibles, we'll see that that is not true. In fact, the Ten Commandments are a starting place for God's people. That is where the relationship to God um, begin, um, and how he decides to rule over his people. The Ten Commandments, rather than being a beginning, are a culmination of hundreds of years of history. And so um, to do justice to my students, um, I'm going to put you through a crash course of everything they learned in the first two months of being in my classroom. And so when we open up our Bibles, we have the creation. All right, everybody with me? We know about the creation. God spoke, the world was made, and then man completely, totally messed it up, flipped everything on its head, what we call the fall. Um, And after the fall, we see God bring about the flood. And a few generations after Noah and his family, we see this guy named Abram. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Abram when he shows up on the scene. We know who his daddy and his granddaddy are, but that's about it. We know he lives in Ur of the Chaldeans, and we see that God speaks to Abram and says, Abram, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, and you're going to go to the land that I tell you. That was it. That's all he gave Abram. He didn't give him a map. He didn't give him instructions. He just said, pack up your family oh well, your wife, because he didn't have any kids yet. Pack up your slaves gather your shepherds, pack up your tents, and I just want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we see the Lord give a covenant, a promise, a contract, and an agreement to Abram. Um, Abram at this time is 90 years old, and his wife Sarai is 80. They have no children. Sarai has been barren her entire life, and God says, Abram, if you go to the land that I'm promising you, you're going to have Children as innumerable as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand on the beach. And Abram says, God, I don't know how you're going to do it because you know that my wife Sarah I can't have children, but I trust in your plan. And we see over and over again in Genesis chapter 16 and 18 and into the 20 aughts of uh, Genesis, God continues to renew this covenant with Abram. And it's not until 10 years later as Abraham pursues this land that the Lord has promised to him in his generations, we see his wife, Sarah, is expecting a child, and his name was Isaac. And God, like he did with Abram, now named Abraham, makes a covenant with Isaac, that same covenant. I'm going to give you a land that I promised to your fathers, and you're going to have children innumerable as the stars And as the sand by the sea. And Isaac uh, goes on to have two sons, one of whom is named Jacob. And Jacob, as you may know, was later renamed Israel which means to wrestle with God because he literally got into a wrestling match with God because he was so bent on disobeying the will of God. And when God touched his hip and threw it out of place, like some of us in the room might be aware of, uh, he was later named Israel and he could no longer walk well and he was often carried by his sons. And one of the places he was carried was the land of Egypt. Because you see, Jacob had 12 sons, the 11th of whom had visions. And he saw visions of his Ten older brothers and his parents bowing down to worship him. And so his brothers faked his murder and sold him into slavery to the land of Egypt. And over time, he rose in the structure and became the right-hand man um, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when there was famine in all the land, only Joseph, who could interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, was able to prepare the land of Egypt for this famine. And so Jacob, carried by his sons, is brought to Egypt where they can beg for food from Joseph. And over the course of several conversations at the tail end of the book of Genesis, you can go and read it, they discovered that this man um, who they thought was just an Egyptian is actually their brother Joseph. And they bow down and worship him. And because of what Joseph and his family had done, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, allots them land where them and their descendants can live for the rest of their Lives and the people of Jacob, the people of Israel, begin to explode and they grow into an innumerable number in the land of Egypt. And a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph comes along and he begins to enslave Jacob's descendants. Over time, he forces them to no longer have sons, and when they do, he sends people out to kill their baby boys to control the population because they had grown so powerful and in number. And eventually God sends Moses to rescue his people. Uh, This is what we read in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, to rescue his people after plagues get brought on the land of Egypt. And this is where we see God giving those 10 commandments. After this culmination of history of God being a redeeming. Covenant-keeping God. He turns to his people and he says, now it's your turn for me to give you a covenant, to give you instruction for you to follow. God had provided a way for his covenant people to be distinctly his, different than all the other people whom they were going to be living around when they crossed into the promised land that God gave to Abraham. And ultimately, this law has one purpose. This is where we're going to settle today. To call humanity to worship God rightly and to worship God only. Right worship has a clear imperative on which it is based. And it's the opening lines of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God. The basis for all worship. And worship then in its perfect form is honoring and revering God solely based on who he is and what he has done. He is the covenant-keeping God, and he has brought about his promises to his people. Worship, in its proper form, kind of has two parts to it. It has an external practice and an internal reality. This is what we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about today. That external practice is what we've already done this morning. It's singing to the Lord our God. It's gathering as His people. It's giving of our time and our money, whether it's to a church or another organization. And then we have our internal reverence. That is that honoring of God or dishonoring of God that only we in the Lord know about. That which cannot be seen by others. But the two are inseparable. They're inseparable. Because if we have a good internal reverence of God, then our giving and our gathering and our singing have meaning. It's properly done. But if we have an internal hatred and dishonoring of God, our giving and our singing are nothing more than filthy rags, Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians. And so, in order to understand what this true worship means, I want to take the next few minutes to look at an account of the Israelites' failure to worship in Jeremiah chapter three. Don't turn there, okay? I'm going to summarize it for you in Jeremiah chapter three. Jeremiah is speaking to the land of Judah. Israel's is up in the nor- or Yes, Israel's is in the northern kingdom. Judah's in the southern kingdom, this is hundreds of years after King David, and he's saying, Judah, you have watched Israel suffer, so why are you choosing not to honor the Lord? And in the spirit of what Jeremiah said, that's what I want to do today. I want to look at the failure of the Israelite people so that we would not repeat that failure ourselves and see ourselves Worshipping other gods. All right, so everybody, are we ready to start flipping because this is where it starts, okay? Flip with me just a few more pages. E- Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. After their rescue from the land of Egypt, and after wandering around in the wilderness, surviving on manna and quail by the way which the Lord provided that the Israelites grumbled about and couldn't find if it was right in front of their face, um, and water that God allowed to miraculously come out of rocks in the desert, God invited his people to worship him at Mount Sinai. This is where we see him him give his Ten Commandments, where we see the fear of the Lord settle on his people. Um, And God called Moses to join him up on the peak of the mountain. It was there for 40 days and 40 nights that God instructed Moses on all he had for the Israelites. He reiterated the Ten Commandments to Moses. Uh, he gave him construction plans for the Ark of the Covenant and the meeting tent for God and his people called the Tabernacle and how to conduct a Sabbath, a good, proper, restful, God-honoring Sabbath, which is a sermon all into its own. Um, but in the meantime, down on the ground at the base of the mountain, we see the people of God begin to construct something of their Now we're about to plug through 24 verses, but I think we can all do it, okay? I'm not going to make you stand up uh, like some preachers do, all right? So cozy in, get comfortable, get where you can read, because as we go through this, we're going to notice one reason why Israel abandoned proper worship, and we're going to see two ways how they did it, and then we're going to bring it into our 21st century context. So follow along with me. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was Moses' right hand. He spoke to Pharaoh when they were preparing to leave on behalf of Moses, because Moses um, either had a stutter or some speech impediment, um, biblical scholars would tell us. And they gathered themselves to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We don't know what's become of him. And so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold that they had and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And all the parents in the room said, Amen. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. talking to Moses. But Moses implored the Lord and he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring us out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster for your people remember abram isaac and israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them i will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that i have promised i will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever and the lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people And then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the front of the mountain. And he took the calf, and he said to them, Burn it with fire and ground it to powder and scatter it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods, so who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. And so I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to him, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf." I don't know about you, but I've been around many a fire. I've thrown marshmallows and graham crackers, and occasionally when I was a child, trash into it, and nothing just happened to come out of it. Um, I didn't just throw it in there, and then magically this whole new shape came out of it. Um, There was intention behind what Aaron did. But we see a little bit differently for Moses. Up on the mountain, he's reminding God, God, I know your covenant and your promise, who you are and what you have done, but the people of Israel down at the base of the mountain, they did not. Hidden in this tragic and heartbreaking account of Israel's betrayal is a subtle telling of why they turned away from worshiping Yahweh God. Simply put, they forgot what the Lord had done. If worship is revering God for who He is and what He has done, then Israel has removed half of the worship equation. They forgot what the Lord had done. And really, sometimes we might think that they forgot who he is and his goodness and his grace and his character by thinking that he just swallowed up Moses on top of the mountain mere weeks after being rescued from the land of Egypt, from the land of slavery, from their slave masters where they were beat, tortured, and often died in their work. They forgot that God had saved them. And kept the covenant that he had given to their fathers, 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 all the way back to Abraham. They forgot what God had done. And did you notice in the passages we were reading some of the confusion about what actually happened in the events of the Exodus? Uh, If we go back to verse 4, it says, Aaron turns to the people and says, These are your gods, O Israel, who, who what? who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But even later, in verse 23, Aaron claims that the people came, with, uh, came to him and said, Make us gods whom shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who, what? who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what came of him. They're claiming Moses brought them out of Egypt. They're claiming they did it themselves. They're claiming a golden calf idol brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're confused. And they're confused because they forgot the most basic thing about their worship. "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. All this time, even if they had been, even after they had been given the command to worship the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, they forgot all the Lord had done. The basis for all of the Ten Commandments and all the later laws of God is rested in His personhood, in His character, and in what He has done. Yet their memory failed them. God did not forget His covenant, but His people forgot their God. That's why they were able to turn so easily to defile His commandments and worship other things because they forgot what the Lord their God had done. And in their forgetfulness, the Israelite people worshipped improperly in two ways. The two ways how they worshipped. They had already lost their internal reverence when they forgot what God had done, but then their external practices gave their worship away, and they worshipped in two ways that I want to really focus on today. They worshipped with their treasure, quite literally their gold, and then they worshipped with their time, and I want to flesh these two out real briefly before we bring it into our, um, our place and time. Uh, we see the irony and revealing of these things in chapter 32, up in verses 2 through 4. And so Aaron said to them, take off the earrings of gold that are in your ear of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, the first probably several dozen times, I was like, okay, that was a really dumb move, Israel, but okay. And then, as I continued to read, I had the thought of, wait a minute, previously enslaved, didn't have a lot to their name, barely made it out of Egypt alive. Where where did this previously enslaved people get a bunch of gold earrings and jewelry and other precious metals from. Um, Because I don't know about you, but those don't just suddenly come into my life when I'm wandering around in a desert. Um, So let's take a quick detour. Go backwards for me uh, to Exodus chapter 12 so we can kind of get an idea of where this jewelry was coming from. Um, Anybody getting tired yet? Fingers hurting? No? Great. Okay. Uh, So right at the end of the 10 plagues on Egypt, uh, right before God um, passes that 10th plague of the firstborn of Egypt, um, is going to pass away, except for those who celebrate what becomes the Passover meal, uh, God gives instructions to his people about how he wants them to literally walk out of Egypt. And down in verse 33 through 36 of Exodus 12, we're going to see that instruction, or actually we're going to see the the result of that instruction, so as the Israelite people are leaving, after all the firstborns from Pharaoh uh, down to the smallest of animal, after all their firstborn is dead, scripture tells us the Egyptians were urgent with the people of Israel to send them out of the land in haste. Talk about don't let the door hit you when you walk out, for they said, "We shall all be dead." And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, part of that Passover instruction, uh, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had done as Moses told them, and as the Lord told Moses, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had what? He had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they may have what they ask. Thus they plundered Egypt. You see, their gold and jewelry came from the hands of the Egyptian people. Unlike manna and quail and water, it didn't miraculously appear in the desert. It came straight from the hands of the people, only because the Lord's favor upon His people compelled the Egyptians to give it away. As the Israelites ran out of Egypt, they gladly took it as they made their way towards the Red Sea. The favoring gift of God to the Israelites was melted down to create an idol that blasphemed all that God had done. This favor, this gift, this blessing from the Lord, this treasure, this thing that God intended for their worship. They hand it over to a false and fake god. The great irony is that while they were longing to have another god to worship, they were sacrificing the gifts God had given them in order to make this idol. They were literally taking an article of remembrance for the Lord's redemption and turning it into an idol. This would be like us celebrating communion, but instead of remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we took all of the the bread and the wine and whatever other components, I'm sorry, Baptist Church, the bread and the juice of communion, and we formed it into an idol down here in front of the stage and began to bow down and worship bread and juice instead of the God who gave His Son that we're remembering in the act of communion. Even worse, God already had a plan for the gold that came out of the land of Egypt. Um, Starting in Exodus chapter 21 all the way up till 32, when God sends Moses back down, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days receiving instruction from the Lord. Part of that instruction is the building of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Um, a couple of the things that fill the tent of meeting is going to be the ark of the covenant, which is covered in what? Come on, Sunday school. Gold. They are to build gold and lampstands. They are to build a bronze table for the bread. They are to build a bronze altar for sacrifices and so on and so forth. It goes even even the rings which are to attach the outside of the tent of meeting to the poles upon which they're placed are supposed to be made out of solid gold. But instead, Israel took this gold, this favor, this gift, this treasure that the Lord bestowed upon them to steward, and they turned it into an idol instead. While God was instructing the use of this gold, Israel was defaming it. The way they practiced worship with their treasure was a complete diversion from the way God intended for it to be used. But it wasn't just their treasure that they worshipped falsely with, um, but their time as well. The misuse of their time in Exodus 32 is a lot more subtle than their treasure. It's really easy to see them giving away their gold and smelting down a golden calf, but their time is woven in here a little bit more subtly. Um, Exodus 32, verse 1. It opens by telling us when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. Moses command or I'm sorry God commanded Moses to come up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Like it wasn't a secret. That was God's plan. Moses, you've given the 10 commandments. Now come back up here and let me handwrite them out for you and this stiff-necked people and let me give you the rest of my instructions for my Covenant people whom I've called to myself as the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was always the plan for Moses to be up there for 40 days and 40 nights, but the people were saying, Moses is delaying and coming down. We thought this was just a weekend trip. Where is Moses? And they began to worry and to doubt. The plan all along, if you want to have a verse for that, was uh, Exodus 24, 18, when we see God call Moses up for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, but it didn't take any time for Moses to ascend the mountain, for the people to begin um, to misuse their time and to worship falsely with their time. Um, they didn't give God the time to act that he had established with them. He said, give me 40 days and 40 nights with Moses. I will give him back, I promise but they didn't hear the lord rather they doubted and complained all right and they gave the time in their minds to worry but also to plan idol worship no one just had the epiphany of hey i'm going to go talk to Aaron and like maybe it'll be a golden duck maybe it'll be a golden goose but like a calf might be the best thing no they sat as a nation and came up with this idea to approach Aaron and Beg for an idol. It was an idea that brewed among the people even before their divine theft of the treasure which God had given them. I mean, just imagine for a second, some of you, you less have to imagine and just have to kind of go back to your childhood, but imagine living in an era without a cell phone or a home phone and you're in a tent city in a desert and the leader of your people is missing and his right-hand man says, okay, go and gather all of the gold from your wives and your children and your servants and bring it to me. Okay, it's not just like, Calling up people down the street and saying, "Hey, we we need your gold. You're gonna have to bring it." No, someone had to go to these families and say, "Hey, Aaron, um, Aaron needs all the gold. If you could, you could give." Oh, oh, your wife is she's out. Oh, she's with the girls today. Oh, when do you think she's gonna be back? Well, I kind of need it like today. All right, so that's one house, and then he goes to the next, and he goes, "Hey, Aaron needs the gold. Oh, your son's out in the field trying to find water." So when is he going to be back? Well, I'm going to need it as soon as you can. And it happens, and it goes, and it goes, and it goes for days at a time as the nation of Israel is trying to gather this gold for Aaron to make this idol. It wasn't a snap decision. They didn't go to the bank and withdraw it. They didn't open their safe deposit boxes and just get it. They had to go to great lengths to acquire this treasure. They used their time unwisely. They used it to defame the Lord. They gave their mental time and their thought life They gave their time and their community and they gave their occupational time to idolatry rather than their mental time and their time in community and their time in their job to remember the Lord. They chose to think of things other than the Lord and to worship with their time in that way. They were no longer revering and honoring God with their minds. They forgot the Lord. And through the use of their time and their treasure, they worshipped other things. They misused those things. And now I know it may sound like I'm, I'm standing up here and I'm really harping on the Israelites and how dare the Israelites this and how dare the Israelites that. Uh, but I promise there's a reason. And here it is. We do the exact same thing day in, day out, moment moment, we choose to give our time and our treasure to something else. Now we might not be stealing our wives' jewelry and smelting it down into a physical idol, but we are still just like the Israelites worshiping things or peoples or ideas other than God through the use of our time and treasure. And it is almost certainly because we too have forgotten what God has done. So let's take it from the top. Why? Why do we worship other things? People, ideas, communities, political ideologies, all of it. Why do we bow down and worship those things? And like Israel, it's simply because we have forgotten what God has done for us. It's not always as simple as forgetting the ways he's rescued us from a hard time. It's not always as simple as forgetting the miraculous healings he's done in the lives of our loved ones or the way he got us through a financial struggle because we rarely forget those things. Those are the things we like to tell other people when they're going through those things too, which is a great and a good thing. But rather, it is the way we forget the way that God has ultimately rescued us. The way that He has saved us from our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. His offer for us to receive grace because of Christ's sacrifice and for our, our sealing by the Holy Spirit into eternal life. Now, we maybe now don't forget this in a big way. Uh, maybe we remember being baptized or little things, but moment to moment, day to day, we sometimes forget the reality that we are indwelt, Paul says. By the Holy Spirit. I mean that we forget to walk out a life in the light of our salvation. I'm talking about the moment-to-moment choices of not honoring God and choosing rather to worship other things or people or ideas and to give them value higher than we place value on the Lord. Paul, in his letter to the church of Ephesus, says in chapter 1, verse 13, if you want to start flipping, you can, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. Um, in him, and I'm going to change some of these pronouns to encapsulate all of us, in him we also, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession Of it, our inheritance, much like the end of the covenant that God provided to Abraham, is that eternal life, that being with Jesus for the remainder of our days we're indwelt by the spirit we're sealed by him he is walking with us for those of us who believe and follow as disciples of christ he is with us in and during all things and so in the same way that god was preparing a dwelling place among his people preparing that tabernacle where he would literally descend as smoke and rest on the top of the ark of the covenant the mercy seat so that he could be and dwell in love with his people While they were building an idol against him, we have become that dwelling place where the Spirit has descended to love and live among his people. But we often treat either our bodies or our lives as an idol. We give our bodies or our time and our treasure to things in idolatry. We've been sealed by the Spirit to his glory, but we forsake that glory. Unlike Israel, we aren't building golden calves, but we're giving our worship to other little g-gods. Sometimes they're blatant, and sometimes they're more subtle. Let me give you a quick list. Um, Our jobs, our families, our political agendas, our lusts, our paychecks, our cars, our pride, our free time, our hobbies, our greed, our bellies, our satisfaction, our homes. And the list goes on and on. And like Israel, they were revealed by our misuse of time and treasure. So this is where I really want to rest for the remainder of our time today, is how are we using or misusing our time and treasure, and how can we reappropriate it to worship the Lord well? The best way to reveal our idols is to ask ourselves a few questions. So I'm going to have something for you all. It's either going to be on the Church's Facebook, um, or on the website and some other, um, uh, mediums for y'all to have with a list of these questions so they don't bog us down this morning with them. Um, so I'm going to have that for you um, either online through Tim or Rashonda um, in the coming weeks. Um, but before you get to that time where you can sit and reflect and ask those questions, I want to go through some common things uh, that may surface this week as we go through those questions. Um, our treasure uh, is usually more easily tracked than our time, much like we saw with the Israelite people. It was really easy to watch them bow down and smelt down a golden calf, but it was really kind of difficult to see the way that they gave their time to that idol. Um, and so what we need to do is we need to look at our monthly or weekly budgets or even our taxes and to reveal what we worship with our money, where, on whom we spend our money will reveal much about our heart. Uh, Is our money providing for our families and being given to helpful God honoring mission opportunities, or are we blowing it on petty purchases uh, and human institutions like politicians or local stores or things of the sort? Again, money is easy to trace, but as easy as it is to trace, it's really, really easy to justify And because I'm the guest preacher today, I can talk about money and watch everyone get really uncomfortable and not really care. Because I don't have any repercussions like Tim would, okay? It's not why he asked me here, I promise. Um, But like I said, as our money, just as easy it is to trace it and see where it's going, it's just as easy to justify the way that we are using it. We say things like, well, I really need, and you can fill in the blank convincing ourselves that it's justifiable, that it's needed, that it's necessary for us to have in this life. The idea of the American dream has in a lot of ways corrupted this, um, that we can always have bigger, we can always have better. Um, And what I've noticed in my short 20-odd years on this planet is that usually bigger and better means a bigger and better price tag as well. And the idea um, that we need to watch our money closely so we don't fall into the work worship of money is something that came straight from Jesus as well. He warns of this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says that no one can serve two masters. you are either going to love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve both God and money. We've been convinced over our 250-some-odd year history as a nation um, that the pursuit of bigger and better is always good, always justifiable, and is always the better choice. When in reality, we are called to be the least, to turn from the worship of money and those things which can lead to sin. As disciples of Jesus, we must count up our treasure, not an effort to know how much to spend, but to see whom or what we worship with it. So that's my slightly brief, uncomfortable conversation about money for the morning. You'll do more of this on your own in the coming week if you go through the practice that I'll have for you. Um, But what about our time? Our worship through time in the 21st century is much like the Hebrews. Um, It can be very subtle, but it reveals just as much, if not more, than our money. And again, like the Hebrews, our time is going to take two shapes. It's going to be what we do with it, and it's going to be what we think with it. Um, how we use our time really breaks down into three big categories. All right, I think these are all going to be very familiar to us, um, so I don't think I'm going to shock anybody. A lot of our time, first and foremost, goes to our work, our job, our occupation that thing which pays us and enables us to then again pay other people and to live in this life Um, for some of us maybe it's in a home raising our children or our grandchildren if it's for those of us who are retired in the room oh one day when i am retired it'll be taking care of that property maybe that you have or maybe even for you it's mostly a commute when i drive to the school that i work at i'm spending about two two and a half hours on the road some days, and there's a lot of thought time that I can give or not give to the Lord in that situation. Uh, secondly, it's going to be our home—that time where we spend at home, relaxing, enjoying our family, enjoying our hobbies, um, having having meals with friends on the evenings or on the weekend. And in this third category, it only really exists for the spiritual—not just the Christian, but for the spiritual. This this idea of communion and community, that time which we give to our personal devotion as Christians to Yahweh God of the Hebrews. And this is going to include the time we spend reading our Bibles, the time we spend praying, the time we spend engaged in discipleship relationships, um, and that time we spend in church activities or other volunteerism or, or things that we do to help spread the name of Jesus. Now, I don't think it would shock anyone if I were to say that me and most of the people in this room spend the majority of our 24 hours every day at work or thinking about work or having to do work things or being on a commute. And then from there, everything time-wise is going to descend. We're probably going to spend more time at work than we do at home, and we're probably going to spend more time in those homebound activities than in communion and community activities. When we do not prioritize communion and community time, we are giving ourselves the opportunity to misuse our time and spend it worshiping other things. We as believers in dwelt with the Spirit do not have to wait to go to a tent of meeting or Forestburg Baptist Church or wherever it is to sacrifice and worship our God. We have the unique ability apart from every historical religion, every modern religion, to be in and of ourselves, communing constantly with the Lord if we follow Jesus. Work, then, if we are the tent of meeting, not some place we have to go. Work, then, is going to become a mission field where we can have lunches and conversations with our co-workers who love or don't love Jesus. Um, our commute, uh, I'm sorry, our commutes can, begin, can be times of dwelling in what the Lord is teaching us. Um, our work itself is going to become an opportunity to honor God. Our homes in that same line of thinking are going to become places of worship for us and our families, whether that's through song or just through talking about Jesus together. Maybe it's reading the Bible or praying together. Um, maybe it's just making time together to see Jesus known in our communities, to go and to volunteer together, to work on mission opportunities together. Um, Our places of work and home can and should be turned into places of communion. We as indwelt believers in Jesus have the opportunity to turn every place into a place of worship. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, is when the Lord through Moses gives us an example of this. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now the rest of this verse is some very practical, applicable ways that we as indwelt believers of Jesus can see our homes and our communities and our places of work and our insert blank wherever you spend your time into places of communion and as mission fields for the gospel. You will talk of them when you sit in your house. Um, I don't know about you, but I try to stand as little in my house as possible because I have a really comfy rocking chair and a really comfy couch, all right? So when we're sitting, we're finding ourselves in our homes. We can Honor the Lord with a heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you walk by the way, whether that's your commute um, or taking your kids to school or your grandkids or picking up your grandkids, and when you lie down and when you rise up, let the last thoughts and the first thoughts of every day be turned toward worship of the Lord. And you shall bind to them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We're supposed to have the Word of God and the, our ability to worship Him handy, whether that means you have to get it tattooed and blasted across your forearm, or whether it means you have to have a little stick hanging in front of your eyes so that you see the Word of God wherever you go. And we shall write them on the doorpost of our house and on our gates to have them present for us and for our family. God knows that we live in a world of distractions that we are finite, simple, stiff-necked, silly people, but he wants to create space. <clears throat> he wants to create spaces for us to worship him while he has given us methods to remember him so that we might not be like the Israelites. And so I promised you that I would have a couple of questions and ways for you to really walk this out. And to borrow language from a pastor um, up in Portland um, who I appreciate and whose ministry has done a lot for me, I want us to to begin to practice the way of Jesus. Uh, John tells us, That as believers, we are grafted into the vine of Christ. Um, And those of us who are not grafted in and do not thrive are cut, thrown into the fire as an analogy for our eternity. Um, But for us to be grafted well and to thrive in the vine of Christ, we have to have a trellis behind us. If we're to live a life of Christ, we have to have a lifestyle like Jesus's so that we can walk well in the way that he has set before us. Um, and so, I have a couple of things this morning that I want us to walk through. And again, I'll get these posted, whether to Facebook or to the church's website or wherever we think uh, might be helpful for you. Um, but let me give you one caveat before I begin my laundry list of things, okay? These practices are not meant to be done in one sitting. Okay, if you are doing this all in one sitting, you are not doing it with a reverent and honoring heart toward God. And I would suggest that you take a piece for every day of your week. Okay. Take it over the next few days, the whole next week, whatever works well for you. Um, These are ways that we can practically work out what we've heard today about how we often forget the Lord, how we can better remember him, how we worship or don't worship the Lord with our time and our treasure. And I would encourage um, and provide you with a way after this to meet with your Sunday school group or friends over. Um, dinner or coffee to talk through these things as well. i have some, some talking points with you. Um, but first and foremost, before we even begin to think about the practices and as we mill over what we've talked about today, the first thing we need to do is pray. Um, before we can begin, we need to seek the Lord in prayer. If we are indwelt by the Spirit, which Paul tells us in Ephesians, if we are sealed by that Spirit For Christ, then we should start by opening our hearts and our minds to Him in a reverent and honoring way. Um, Everything we begin this week, and I'll be doing it with you, every practice that we do needs to start with prayer. Not just tomorrow morning when you begin the whole week, but every day as you start a practice, start it with prayer. And so the first practice of the week is the practice of remembering. To avoid the fundamental mistake of the Israelites and often ourselves, we need to remember what the Lord has done in our lives. First and foremost, this means that we need to recall our salvation. Um, And so what I would encourage you to do this week is to set aside to plan some time, um, a significant block of time where you're going to take a pen and a pad of paper as you're able, and I want you to write out. And as full detail as you can remember, and for the elder saints in the room, all right, there's going to be a lot more pages than the 20-somethings in the room, okay? But that's okay. I want you to write in as much detail as you can your salvation experience. Maybe it was when you were young, so maybe you don't remember all the details. Uh, Maybe it was just like 50 or 60 years ago and you don't remember all the details. That's okay. Start asking around. Ask friends, ask parents or uncles um, or even your kids. Hey, can you help me to write this? Out. And once you've done that, after you've gotten your salvation experience, start writing everything since then. What are the big moves that God has done in your life? That job that he helped you to get, um, that marriage that he saved, that financial hardship that somehow you just made it through without even knowing where your next paycheck was going to come from. Um, and once you've got it all down, whether it takes an hour, whether it takes days, I want you to take time to pray through every single word that you have written down. I want you to take that time to pray, not only to thank God, but to worship him. And maybe you just need to say thank you as a form of worship. Uh, maybe you need to bust out into song in your heart or even in your mouth. All right, Whatever it looks like for you, practice some external worship as you remember what the Lord has done. And when you've gotten that all written out, I want you to fold it up real pretty. I want you to stick it somewhere safe, somewhere where you can go back and look at it in those times when you don't remember what the Lord has done or it feels like he's not around anymore. So you can go and you can read your own words of remembrance for when the Lord rescued you out of the land of Egypt. And then next we need to examine our lives to see whom we worship with our time and treasure. All right, for our treasure we need to start by looking over our budgets, all right? And this is my way of saying if you don't keep a budget, you might want to start, okay? We need to start by looking over our budgets. If you're married, you need to do this with your spouse, okay? Even if you don't think your bu- spouse can spell the word budget, you need to do this practice together, okay? It is my job in the Fletcher younger Fletcher household uh, to keep our finances. I love spreadsheets. It is my love language, okay? It's just what I do. Um, but whenever Jordan and I sit down to plan the next month or plan some big purchases or whatever it is, she always notices things that I don't. All right, and even though it's not her preferred mode to be doing budgets, all right, she contributes more heavily to the budget than I do certain months. Okay, so we need to be doing this with our spouses. If you are married and you don't think that your spouse is a lover and disciple and follower of Jesus, I would still encourage you to do this with your spouse. It's going to be really, really, really stinking hard. Um, especially if your spouse is the one that keeps the budget. You're going to have way different radical priorities, um, but it will be an opportunity to witness and love and minister to your spouse in a way that I can guarantee you probably have never done before. Okay, it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be okay. All right, I would suggest as you go through these budgets and you begin to look where your treasure is going, I'd say go back about six months. All right, we're in June, so start at the beginning of 2021. Is that even what year it is anymore? I don't even remember. All right, go back six months, and I want you to ask the question, how can we better use our income to worship God and make him known? This will look different from family to family. Uh, My teacher's salary is going to look way different than whatever your salary is, I'm sure. Um, And it's going to look different from circumstance to circumstance. If you're subsisting, if you're barely making it by and barely making ends meet in your household, let me just say this. Uh, Bless you for even giving me your time and attention this morning. Because money is one of those subjects that not only makes us uncomfortable, but it makes us feel less than. Um, as a young college graduate um, who sometimes barely scrapes by, I understand that feeling, and I want you to know that you are seen and you are known by God, and that it is his plan for the church to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves, and that this is a safe place to bring those troubles forward. And to contact Tim or Rashonda or somebody else in the leadership and say, hey, it's a bad month. Okay, That's just my my side note for you. This is a safe place. And so after you've reviewed those budgets, after you've prayed through those budgets, I want you to start planning how you can reorient and reframe your finances to worship more willingly. It might mean that you have to let some preferential or even harmful things go. It may mean you eat out less. It may mean that you need to stop purchasing that tobacco product. It might mean finding alternative products to the brands you usually choose. Or it may mean being willing to invest in maybe a more ethical company, um, something that's going to last you longer so that we are no longer buying products from modern slaves, just like the oppressed Hebrews. We're buying from people and countries and companies that are honoring and lifting up their employees rather than oppressing them. Um, it may mean uh, that we need to find higher quality products, um, and it may mean that that might take some research on our part as well. But if we're to honor God well, like Deuteronomy said, we need to do with our heart and our mind and our soul and our might. And just like our treasure, for our time, we need to come up with a budget for that as well. Simply put, I'd say we need to take our next week and literally walk out every single hour of our next week. By this time next week, you can look back at the last seven days and you can categorize things into the three categories we talked about, work, home, and communion. You can see where you are investing your time. And just like our budgets, then we can see where we can reappropriate and reframe our time to worship the Lord well. And last, last but certainly not least, we actually have to put it into practice. Uh, my personality is to be stuck up in my head and to think through things and to think, wow, that was a really cool thing. I'm glad I did it, but not sometimes actually do anything with it. Uh, but my encouragement for us today will be that we actually put this into practice. And that's why I'm going to have those handouts um, online. Or if you don't do the internet thing, I totally understand it. We'll find a way to get one in your hand before you come to church next Sunday. And so let me close uh, by reading this for us one last time this morning. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third And the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. And so, Father, as we begin to walk into a world of temptation and distraction in the coming week, would you give us the spirit to know where our treasure and our time is going, to know how to honor and to revere and to love you well father would worship not just be something we do with our mouths would it be something that we do with our pocketbooks and with our clocks as well would we not forget what you have done and would we run everything we do in this life through the lens of what you have done knowing what you have rescued us from from sin and from death and into eternal life where we can honor and revere you forever. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his commitment to the cross to see us saved in his name. And it's in that wonderful, beautiful, lovely name we ask all these things this morning. Amen.